You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Ready for some Genesis time? Gonna look at some Genesis. Um, I'm going to invite you guys to open to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and if you guys have looked at Genesis at all or the Bible, uh, it's raining outside and it's going to be little gloomy in here today. Uh, Genesis 3 is going to be the chapter. Um, while you guys are doing that, I'll point your guys' attention to the uh, Genesis uh, map that is uh, outside in the lobby. Um, my dear friend and co-patriot Timothy in the faith has printed out a bunch of these from Kinko's, and I invite you to put it on your fridge. And um, if you're visual, we all are a visual culture. Um, I think that this map really condenses and ties all the themes together in a really intuitive way. It's good for kids, it's good for adults, and it's just something to help to see the bigger picture, the bigger picture. And that's really important, right? If you guys, um, speaking of the movie theater and being in Camelot, have you guys ever uh, been to a movie when uh, the person that you went to the movie with um, did not see the first five or ten minutes of the movie and is just totally lost the entire time? And it's a, it's a liability for you. It's really hard for you to enjoy. You know that they're not enjoying it. They're out on their phone. And uh, it's really one of two things. Either they continually, incessantly ask you questions that they've already answered in the plot. I told my mom one time, literally, uh, both in an NBA game, in a sports scenario, and also in movies as well. I, it's just, so this is rude. So it's, but it's a lot of love here, so you just got to understand. I just tell her, you only have three questions. So I tell her, like, if you ask me who is Han Solo, like, I can only answer it one time, and that's it. And then Jar Jar, I won't even answer that one. But if you're with somebody who's not knowing the plot, you know, they're not connected to the storyline. They might get by part two or part three, like, who the good guy and the bad guy is. But by the time that Luke, you know, that, that Darth Vader tells Luke he's his father, there's just no, there's no resonance. There's no connection. And so I, I share all that because I think that's what happens to us um, in terms of just um, being being part of the family of God and being part of the heritage of, um, of Jesus, uh, when it is that we sort of pick up our Bible with kind of verse of the day without seeing the bigger picture, particularly the beginning of, 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 of the movie, of Genesis. Does that make sense? Um, uh, and so, for example, um, I think about it this way. Genesis is a lot like the alphabet of the rest of the Bible. If we don't know the letters and the way that God wants to talk about the definitions of his words that start with Genesis 1 and 2, we're sort of lost. And although you can read little chunks of the Bible um, as parts of God's narrative, they're really designed to fit together as one united story. They're not Aesop's fables. They are one singular story directing to Jesus. And that's how the Bibles have been written, and that's how it's meant to be read. And so, uh, anyways, that's certainly how we'd want to be continuing to carry these threads throughout, not just standalone sermons, but a story that's being told in the overarching narrative. So just as a review, Genesis 1, what did we see there? Genesis 1 is God revealing his character through creation. And uh, we see a God in Genesis 1 who is um, just, just intensely creative and intentional. Um, the, the whole purpose of Genesis 1 is to talk about the fact that when you go outside and, and you really stop and pause and think of the trees that you'd see outside or the clouds or the atmosphere or the heat or the climate or the fact that we're one inch or closer to the sun or one inch further away from the sun, we'd all combust. I mean, we, we start to, to recognize from Genesis 1 and really just life that there is an intentional designer behind it all, and he's created things with this purpose. So the story begins with formless and void, tohu vavohu, and he speaks ruah, breath, into the atmosphere, and he creates out of this, this form and function, and biologists and, 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 and sociologists and historians and anthropologists will look at the stuff that goes on in life, Christian or non-Christian, they're like, what? How, who, who is the mind and the creation, the creator behind this creation? There's too much uh, design in this for there not to be a creator. And then, and then the second chapter... 
opens up and reveals a little bit more about the storyline, which is uh, the other major character in the plot, man uh, and woman. And so we studied about how man um, is, is not just kind of a little slave peon peasant guy whose just job is to get out of God's way and kind of give him credit for all the stuff that he does, but, but rather man has this important position to be a priest in creation below the creator, but above the creation and, and to mediate uh, the rule and reign, the goodness, the shalom into the, the creation in a way that if he didn't mediate it, it would become curse. So if you think about it this way, the sons of God, that, that language uh, is not unique to, to Genesis. It's all of the other nations and empires at that time used the term sons of God, but they used it for, for, for one person in their society called the king or the queen. Think, let that sink in about how revolutionary this thought is. So if you went to the Assyrian Empire and you said, where is a son of God? They would point to the throne. But if you were to, to, to approach heaven and talk about Yahweh Elohim and ask him, who are the sons of God? He'd talk to the seven billion people that are on this earth, that they're all kings and queens. They're all rulers. And that's really important for the story as we continue on. All right. So we're in Genesis 3, and today we're going to be talking about this last question up here about the problem of evil and, and where it comes from. And so... Um, uh, just solicit your prayers today, and, and gosh, we could all get up on the mic and talk about different prayer requests. Um, I was on Facebook this last week, and uh, a student of mine, Erin, um, hadn't heard from her or talked to her in a while, but she's, she's 25 now, um, was just uh, out of nowhere, just killed this last weekend. Um, like, a, like somebody, like she was in her car, and somebody, I don't know if it was a personal thing or um, something that was kind of random or a robbery or something like that. This girl, she was 25, and she was, we're gonna, we need to pray for her family, and she was just, uh, her life was, was just killed, just ended, just like that. And, um, and, 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 I, and, and the sad thing about that is, I mean, it's deeply saddening, um, but kind of the, the scary thing about it, at least for me, is the fact that although I'm deeply saddened, I'm less and less, like, shocked about that kind of stuff. And I don't know where, how, how, you know, you, you process that kind of information, and maybe it's because of Facebook, and maybe it's because of just years, but you start to, you grow up from a child, and you sort of think that usually good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, and there's these categories of who you can expect to be good, and who you expect, you know, to end up on top and on the bottom, and, and all, the thing that really, uh, the, the thing that really messes with us, I think, in our heart and our soul, is we think about good and evil in the world, is that, um, the older we get, those categories seem to dissipate, you know? Like, that's not the first student, if you guys have been teaching for a while, um, if you taught, taught, I taught for six years, and that was now, what, 10 years ago. Over that 10-year time, a lot of bad stuff happens to a lot of good people. And I've seen plenty, there, there, there's, it's saddening, the statistics and the, and, and the things that can happen to a young person um, in the course of, of 17 years. And, and, and people in general good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. We wrestle with this problem of evil and justice in the world. And so there is this, um, this New York Times columnist that I've been reading uh, in the last week named um, Steven Pinker, and he did a lot of work in the early 2000s. And, and he actually says that my response to that Facebook post is actually not uncommon. Um, in fact, collectively, uh, s smart people like, like statisticians and, and, and historians and sociologists um, are, are looking at the problem of evil and they're beginning to realize that the problem's not just a system, that there's a problem of the nature of the way that people operate is what 
outside of the church and inside of church people are seeing, right? And, and they're starting to, to recognize um, that there was this idea that we would evolve out of evil and into morality, that with enough um, intelligence and access to information and access to resources and the ability to communicate and learn from our history and our mistakes, that there would be evolution out of evil into ethics. And the, all of the scholars are realizing it's just not happening, that things have, have gone from bad to worse and worse to worse. And and, and that the problem of evil isn't systemic. It's not a matter of political organization or the ability to educate the masses. It's, it's a nature. It's not just a problem. It's a nature. It's something innate that across time and history, socioeconomic status, macro or micro, that people in general, where there are people, there is good. And where there are people, there is, there is dark uh, evil there as well. And, and, and so... And so this is, you know, this is, the, this is the era that we live in. I mean, some of the statistics we think about is the idea from 1940 to 19, or 1942 to 1945, during the Holocaust, there were 6 million people that, that were killed at the hands of the Third Reich and the Nazi, Nazi regime. And, and we would think out of history plus time plus reasoning plus, plus study, we would evolve out of that. But, but actually, the bloodiest 90 days of history was actually not during the Holocaust. The bloodiest 90 days was during the 90s, not the 40s, in the uh, Rwandan uh, genocide that took place, I think, in the night, summer of 1994, where there was one million people killed in 90 days. And, and so, so, so this is my point, is that evil is what they're realizing is not just sort of um, blind and blatant. Evil is sophisticated, and evil is systemic, and it's individual, and it's a concurrent problem that is not just a... a, a a failure of man to make mistakes, but something innately, deeply um, off balance and off kilter within the core of, of what humanity is. And so um, Genesis 3 says this, Genesis 3.1, it says, it says, now the serpent, the Nakash, was more crafty, a room, than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. So the serpent comes in, to this Genesis 2 narrative, Eden, perfect temple, God dwelling with man, perfectly in the Eden temple. It says he makes his way in, and it says he's the craftiest of all uh, of the other creatures. So serpent uh, at that time would have been um, designated as sort of a chaos creature, um, connected to fertility in some ways, uh, and certainly mysterious. Um, maybe in the way that it even shapes itself, it could be kind of piled in a coil and you would walk up on it and not see it, and then all of a sudden it would sort of appear. Like that was the illustration, the image, as well as the meaning. And it, and it talks about this word crafty, which in Proverbs, I don't believe I have it on the screen, but 15.5 says, a fool spurns up a parent's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. That word crafty, a room, is the same word as prudence. Prudence, wisdom, in the biblical mindset, of course, is not evil, but evil, excuse me, wisdom without the fear of the Lord in front of it inherently becomes evil, and so we know this serpent has come in a mysterious way to, to be crafty. And, uh, and I actually didn't know this, but Rusty and Sharon, I Bible quizzed them earlier, and they all knew. I asked them this question because I was kind of uh, really surprised about this answer. Like, the, the, the early audience of the Jews, as they read this book, they wouldn't think um, that uh, a talking snake was normal. I think we usually, th you know, throw that away as thinking, okay, uh, these people are, like, prehistoric, or they're, you know, they're ancient, and then so they would... Um, clearly think that, that snakes talk, but they didn't think that. And so I asked Sharon and Rusty, I asked, you know, why do you guys think that uh, the snake could talk, and when he was cursed, why was he put on his belly if he was already a snake? And both of their answers were, because he had legs. And, uh, and I thought, that's actually uh, pretty accurate. So um, here's, here's something cool, or not cool, but helps us understand the character of evil and the character of the serpent that we're dealing with here. Um, if, you, if you look at Isaiah chapter 6, 
There's lots of um, illustration in, in the major prophets of the Bible to understand the spiritual war that goes on on our planet all the time. Um, we, are spirit, we are physical beings and spiritual beings, uh, but all around us are um, what the Bible calls fallen spiritual beings that um, actually existed at the beginning in the council of God in the realm of the heavens that actually fell. And at the same time as man was falling in Genesis 3, there was also a, a partnership of a spiritual rebellion that was taking place from heaven, heavenly hosts and angels that would fall, and in fact, Lucifer himself, Satan, uh, who some scholars think this serpent represents, uh, origin from this place. In the year that King Uzziah died, it says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. This is the famous passage that says, and they kept on saying, he's holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What's interesting about this passage is that usually eight to nine times out of ten in Isaiah or Ezekiel, when you see the word seraphim, it's actually not seraphim, it's cherubim. But in this particular instance, which is the same scene, two different words, cherubim would mean angel, but seraphim is actually the Hebrew word for snake. And so there's really two options for the, the identity of the snake, and we just camp out on this passage for just one second to understand the character and the plot. But, but the idea here is that potentially it's either saying that this snake was embodied by some sort of a spiritual fallen being, because snakes don't talk, and he was more crafty than all the other animals that were made on day six. Or the other option is he was not made on day six at all. And, and that we are, we are confronted right now with the very essence of, of intelligent, uh, sometimes invisible, and highly sophisticated evil that we're going to see has a, a very strong agenda making its way. That potentially the New York Times columnist is right that evil um, is intelligent and it's also invisible. So he says, he starts on these lines of questions. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? Okay, so time out. Uh, we'll see Eve's answer is kind of right, but uh, uh, it's closer than, than Satan's. And Satan's, or the serpent rather, um, is actually the exact opposite of what the Lord God commands. So he, so he asks uh, Eve this question. She's alone, she's isolated, she's vulnerable. And the snake comes up and says, is it true that the Lord God says, you can't eat from any tree of the garden. There's a sarcastic tone there in, in the original language, and there's a sarcastic pushing um, where, where it made me think of this negotiations expert that I listened to on this podcast one time. He said, the best way to um, get somebody to do what you want is actually not to tell them what to do, but to ask them a question to guide them to where you want them to end up. Because uh, if you can ask them a guiding question rather than leading them to the conclusion, by the time they get to the conclusion, it'll be their conclusion rather than yours. And so the question is this open-ended, insinuating against God's character, like applying this thesis point and forces her to prove otherwise. Here's the thesis point. God told you not to eat? Who is he to tell you not to eat and what not to eat? Aren't you a king, a queen? Aren't you your own boss? Aren't you the image of God? Who is he to tell you? So there's this insinuating question, and it puts her on her heels because now it's easier to accuse than to defend. Now she's going to have to sit here and, and conjure up what she knows, which puts a, a pressure and a kind of angst on her to have to defend um, God uh, and makes her think, why isn't God defending himself on his own behalf? So there's some manipulation there. Okay, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any fr fruit of the trees in the garden. And God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, which is not actually true. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden. He didn't say exactly the location of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She doesn't even quote the, the name of the tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil. And she says, neither shall you touch it or you shall die. And God never said you couldn't touch it. We don't know if that's true or not, and maybe it's a sideways conversation. But the point is, the writer is showing us that there's a deviation between either Eve's knowledge or ability or desire to bring up the truth next to what God has already said. 
that her answer is different from God's. And that's a very vulnerable place to be. And here we see this really important feeling we should feel as a literary device next to, next to Eve is this feeling of innocence, potentially ignorance, and nakedness next to this really dangerous, crafty creature. Like, do you feel that when you read the text? Because that, that's how it's supposed to feel. This young, kind of maybe even naive girl is alone, and the snake comes up and begins to talk to her and ask her these questions. And she has no, no, no background in him, his identity, no, no sort of negotiation experts or understanding of, of any type of evil or manipulation. And this is on purpose. This is on purpose. And it really rests with this, because we need to ask ourselves the question, like, why, why is she here alone asking uh, being asked this thing by the, by the snake, and, and, and this question comes up, at least in my mind, where is God in all this and why doesn't God speak? And here's, here's what I think um, in, in my study and in reflection, I think the scripture can tell us, is, is that it's, C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it this way, it is, it is, it is the fact that the, that the, the serpent can actually um, tempt Eve in the way that God can't. So the way that C.S. Lewis says it is that God can't tempt evil, or excuse me, God can't tempt Eve with goodness the same way that the snake can tempt Eve with evil. I'm going to say that again. In, in her nakedness, in her vulnerability, what God is facilitating is a relationship of trust. And so when the snake comes up, God is wanting Eve to have to be governed from the inside out. He wants Eve to have this trust in the relationship in the Lord God that made her. And he doesn't want to manipulate her with carrots and sticks. And so what happens is when the snake comes, he has a sort of arsenal about him, doesn't he? A sort of guile and, 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 and manipulation. And he can tempt her. James says that God can't tempt us. He can tempt her with evil in a much easier way than God can ever tempt her with good because he is going to put, lure her with carrots and sticks and God isn't one to lure because he works on trust and not temptation. And so the way we experience this, you can experience this in everyday life. How many of you guys know it's way easier to tear down a marriage than to build one up? Isn't that right? Isn't that the theology that's being spoken here, right? A marriage is vulnerable, it's trusting, it's walls down, it's open, and it's certainly way easier to build up a, 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 an environment of suspicion and mistrust and, and fear within that relationship than it is to build up trust. How many of you guys know that when you are raising up a child and you are sending them off to school, your work of five years of labor to build up that child could get torn down in a second by a teacher or by a friend or by a, a bad circumstance? How many of you guys are with me with this? So the point is, is that... Um, Although, although the scripture is pointing to the fact that, that Satan's job is easier, it doesn't take away the fact that God is still good in this situation. And that the heart of God is that, that his people would be governed by trust and not temptation. The heart of God is to raise up images of God that would be rulers that would choose him, not by manipulation, by carrots and sticks, to be governed from the inside out. And Satan has an easier task in this. Sorry, it took me a little while to get into that point, but I think it's important for the character of God and, and what this looks like. All right. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's actually two versions of the PowerPoint and I think hopefully the second one made it. But there are actually three questions to discern what a worldview is. Three questions in every culture to understand why a community works the way that it works and what its values are set on. And they're this. Number one, what's the purpose of life? Who's God? Number two, uh, who is man? The anthropological question. What is man doing? What's its purpose? And, and, and what's good and bad? 
uh, in terms of ethics. And then lastly, what's the good life? How does a person apply goodness into life? Those are the three questions that every worldview has to ask itself. And wouldn't you know, within the series of two questions and maybe a statement and a half, the serpent has attacked all three of these questions in a direct way, right? So if you review it, if you think, is it really true that the Lord God doesn't want you to eat of any of these trees? What's he just done there? What's he just done? He hasn't come with a weapon. He hasn't come with sickness. He hasn't bit her on the heel. He's come at her with a lie. And he has sophisticated and intelligently attacked the very locus of, 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 of the whole creation, the trust line between man and God, and has come with it with one simple, slithery question. Is it true that God doesn't let you eat from any tree? Is it possible that, that God's holding out on you? And then look at who is man? Who is man? He says, uh, you won't surely die. He says, for, for if you eat of this tree, then you'll know the truth. You won't be below, below creator and above creation. You'll be above creator at least at shoulder with creator and above all creation and everything else. That's why he doesn't want you to, to, have, to have what you have. That was actually the, the, the parallel belief of other, of other gods and goddesses and other polytheistic cultures was the idea that like gods and humans weren't actually ethically different. It was just that gods had more power and humans didn't. And if humans were smart, they'd go take the power from the other gods and the gods would do well to defend their own power. And that's kind of how he's painted Elohim here. He's going, God's holding out on you and you were not made just to be a mere mortal, you know, or not a mortal rather, but a mere, you know, co-heir or a mere image of God. You were supposed to be a God with him shoulder to shoulder. And so what is the good life then? The good life is that your eyes would be open. This is what the good life is. Ease your eyes would be open and that, that there would be no real right or wrong or moral accountability or ethics. You could do what you want, say what you want, keep, keep your rules away from my body, keep your laws off of my property, no, zero accountability, the, the ability of autonomy, this dream of life and joy and pleasure without God, this ability to not just be like him in your qualities and characteristics, to be like, to be him as a God and, and, and as we are too, as the seraphim, as the spiritual fallen uh, counsel of God. And so this is, this, is the, this is the critical point that we see kind of the essence of the, the serpent's intent and, and his strategy. The serpent's intent and his, and his strategy, as I kind of mentioned before, is, is not so much to attack Eve as to attack her relationship with God. And this is important as we reflect on spiritual warfare and the problem of evil and where we are today in 2019, is that the enemy... Uh, in the serpent, Satan, the adversary, um, the, the devil, all the different names that we have for the spiritual forces, the powers of evil, the principalities, the world, the flesh, they conspire really to be highly intellectual and highly strategic, and they're not kind of bland and sporadic. They are strategic and pinpointed towards, towards that one single thing, not towards necessarily making people sick or not necessarily towards making people more poor or violent, but to cut the, the trust line between God and man by using the ammunition of lies. And so the snake enters the picture and he doesn't come with a gun. He doesn't come with a cancer. He doesn't come with violence. He comes with a lie. And that's how Jesus talks about Satan even when he arrives on the scene in John, I believe it's chapter eight, when he speaks to the Pharisees, he says that the Satan, the, the devil, is the father of lies. He has come to kill, steal, and destroy and sometimes uses physical ailments and natural disasters, and, and calamity, and pain, and, and heartache. But sometimes he uses things like wealth, and distraction, and busyness, and bad theology, and, 
and divided churches to do his it's, it's, it's really irrelevant to, to how he gets it done. The point is, will he get it done? Will he be able to sever the tie and the connection, the trust between man and God? This is the way that C.S. Lewis puts it, that God's job is harder than Satan's, and Satan really doesn't care about our parking space or whether or not you know, our bills get paid necessarily, so much as his higher objective is simply this. It does not matter how small the sins um, are uh, that provide their cumulative effect to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. By the way, this is out of the Screwtape Letters. Have you guys ever read the Screwtape Letters before by C.S. Lewis? It's just as an overlay here, it's kind of hard to read because he's actually writing kind of um, uh, in a parable, like as a satire, as one demon writing to another. And his whole intent, C.S. Lewis, in writing this story is to try to help the church understand, like, if, if we were scheming like him, what would we do? You know, how would this look? And so it's this letter from this one junior little demon to his uncle um, Wigglesworth or Wormsworth or whatever his name is. Uh, and, and he writes these kind of like strategic ideas about how you might be intelligent, how you might be intentional and strategic about attacking um, the church and the world. It says, it does not matter how small the sins, provided that the cumulative effect is to the edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. This is the way that Joyce Meyer says, and I think it's even quicker and more pithy. She just says, spiritual warfare is won and lost between the ears. We have this picture, I think, of spiritual warfare you know, being the things we see on Halloween, and I absolutely think that that's absolutely the case. We see that littered throughout the Gospels, uh, at least Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke. Um, you know, deliverances and spiritual oppression and spiritual um, inhabitation of people. But Jesus himself says, demons are not the problem because if you cast one demon out and you clear out the house and there's no truth installed in that stronghold, then seven more will come back in return. So the problem's not demons, the problem's lies. And he says the author of lies is Satan. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy, not with tanks necessarily or calamity, but with disruption, confusion, and, and, and lying and uh, distortion. And so he says, what actually sets you free is not how loud you shout in worship. It's whether or not you know the truth in your heart. It's, not, it's whether or not you know the truth that you can trust in your heart in the midst of the lie. And that's what ultimately was lacking. All right, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. These are little, um, they're like little um, design patterns. You know, in Star Wars, you know, when, uh, when something good happens, uh, the theme song kind of plays, they'll be like, that was off tune, sorry about that. And they'll play the little tune, and they'll play it slow, and maybe in a different key, but, but you as an audience, you don't have to be, you, a child could understand, they're, they're connecting a theme for you. And that's the, the value of a, of a theme song is it connects the theme throughout a longer story to connect the things. What the Bible does without music is it uses the same words. And, uh, and we don't have time to, to show some of these themes maybe on another day of how Genesis can help us theme out you know, God's dictionary and how he's continuing to tell the same story. Um, but some of these design patterns or theme words are going to be sprinkled throughout verse 6, for example. Um, so it says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Um, you know, so for example, um, when, when Hagar, some of you guys have read about Abraham um, 
when Abraham and Sarah wanted to have a baby and Abraham and Sarah failed to trust God for the baby that God had promised them, then one of the things that Hagar does is she sees her servant Hagar, and it says it in Genesis 16, she sees her servant Hagar, she takes her and gives her to Abraham. So what's happening? The theme song just rolled, and we are reminded that that was a part of Genesis 3. So there's all sorts of things like that in the Bible, like in Kings, where it says that everybody did what was wise in their own eyes. They're riffing off of Genesis 3. And so this is the core. This is why this is the alphabet of the whole story. But the word delight in eyes, it just, it's like a covet. She sees, she wants, she sees it's appealing. She sees it as something for wisdom, and she takes it, and she eats it. And she gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate And it says, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Then they sewed fig leaves, the largest leaf that, you know, would have been in that area together, and uh, made themselves loincloths. Okay, so we got to camp out on this, because it's super important for the rest of the story. We understand the problem of evil. What is the tree? What is the original sin? What does eyes open mean? What um, What does nakedness and ashamed mean? What does that mean? Okay, so just a a couple of Old Testament passages that give us a bit of a dictionary, so hang with me, okay? All right, Jeremiah 24, 1 and 2. I want to look at these two words, tov and ra. Everybody say tov. That means good, and everybody say ra. Okay, so the knowledge of good and evil, that's the knowledge of tov and ra. Now, ra, as you're going to see, um, doesn't really fit our American word evil very well uh, because ra doesn't just have to do with kind of moral or absolute um, ethics. It has to do with just Bad, you'll see. So, for example, Jeremiah uh, uh, 24, 1 and 2. This is the prophet talking about something the Lord did to him in a vision. It says, The Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very tove figs. Like tove, dude. Like tove, I guess that's what that means, right? Tove just means good. Now, does tove mean that it's, you know... Um, you know, Martin Luther King on the steps of the, Washington, or the Lincoln Memorial talking about civil rights? No, it just tastes good. It's ripe. It's, it's not ethically anything. It's just good, right? Like those that ripen early. And the basket of these other figs were very what? Very raw. They were so bad, they couldn't be eaten. Does that mean it just put on a mask and robbed a bank? Like, that's not evil. It just means not good. Okay? All right, let's look at 1 Kings 5.4. But now the Lord uh, my God has given my, me rest on every side, and there is neither adversary, which that is evil. And this other one is like misfortune or raw. Just bad events. Not tied to anybody doing anything evil. Just unfortunate. You know, not... Not how I would have wanted it to go. That's how it, the, the author in Kings uses it. All right. Uh, Judges 16, 25. And when their hearts were tove, this would be Mary, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. So these are very casual words. Everything from this kind of like ethical evil. When Saul got a spirit on him, it says that God put a raw spirit on him. Um, with the Egyptians, it says that God, you know, did raw to the Egyptians because of their raw. So there's a whole wide, you know, panorama of possibilities for what the word means. But in general, probably the best way to say it is just good and bad. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Now, the, the 10 times or so that you see Tov and Ra together, they have a very select theme. So I want to read through these and see if you can see the theme with me about what, when you put the idea of knowing Tov and Ra are next to each other. All right, so Deuteronomy 139 says this, and the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know Tov from Ra, knowledge of good and evil, they will enter the land. Huh. So, so Tov and Ra um, uh, is this thing that he's connecting with, with children. And there's this idea like they might have it someday, but they don't have it yet. 
So it's talking about entering the land, and it's talking about these kids, and they're supposed to enter the land, and one of the things that they don't have before they enter the land is tov and ra, this idea of knowledge of good and evil. Next one, 1 Kings 3, uh, verses 7 through 9. Now the Lord my God, you have made your servant king in this place of uh, my father David. Okay, so this is a super important prayer of Solomon praying to God. Could have asked them for anything, asks for wisdom. And God says, because you didn't ask for long life, I'm going to give you wisdom because you desire to use your wisdom to serve, um, to serve the kingdom. So this is, this is Solomon's request to God of, for wisdom. He says, um, you know um, that I've been made a servant of this, of this place. He says, but listen, here's the theme. But I, I'm only a child, and I do not yet know how to carry my duties. So what have we seen the combination in both of those passages for? Youth. And they're all of these passages, by the way, but just to show you the first two here. I don't know how to carry my duties. Your servant is here among the people who you have chosen, a great people. Here's the theme music of, right, great people, multiplicity, exodus. They were multiplied and filling the earth, that kind of thing. So showing this is happening. This great people, it's too numerous to count. It's kind of like when Abraham looked at the stars. Look at all these people I have to manage. He says, man, I'm, I'm stuck. Verse 9. So he says, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between what? Tov and Ra. To be able to distinguish between good and evil. Lastly, speaking of Jesus in Isaiah 7, verses 15 through 16, prophesying towards him, he will be eating curds and honey at a young age. He's being weaned. When he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the Ra, and choose the tove, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. That's from Isaiah. So there's, a, there's lots of other examples of that, but you're starting to get the point. So is, is, is tove and ra necessarily something that's not part of, um, of the kingdom of heaven? Is the knowledge, according to this, these passages, is the idea of knowing the difference between good and evil necessarily a bad thing? And the answer is no. I mean, if Jesus is going to know the difference between Tov and Ra, and, and Solomon is asking God, and God's like, that's the best thing you could have asked for, to know the difference between Tov and Ra. We're starting to understand that the knowledge of Tov and Ra is not a problem, but something about the way that Eve engaged the knowledge of good and evil must, must be the problem. And so I thought about this morning on my, my way to church today. My daughter Rose says to me, did you know that next year um, I'll be ready to, to drive a car? And I was like, no, I won't. I will not be ready. She's like, oh, yeah, that's what South Carolina is, Dad. She's like, in South Carolina, when you're 15 or 14, rather, you can start driving around the parking lot, so get ready. Give me the keys. We're going to get this thing going. And I'm like, it's not going to happen. Um, I think, I think what, what, the, what the verses show us, and what really, I mean, this isn't just like a going on a limb. I mean, this is um, the general understanding of analysis of what Genesis means, is that Tovin Ra is not a bad thing. It's just a premature thing for Adam and Eve like the car in a driveway, the idea of knowing the difference between good and evil is absolutely part of what ruling would be. The question is not whether or not knowing good and evil is bad. The question is, is how is that wisdom attained? How is that wisdom attained? And so, and so the, the problem is, is with, within the verbs, if you go back to the way that the fruit was taken, if we go back to verse 6, it says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delightful to the eyes, and desired to make one wise, okay, she took of this fruit. This is the opposite of Solomon. Solomon asks. Solomon asks. He trusts God for it. I'm asking you for wisdom in a relational context. Jesus, in Luke 2.52, grew in wisdom and stature over time with God and man. He asks for the truth and asks for the wisdom, whereas, whereas Adam and Eve sort of take it. They take it. They, they, 
They seize the autonomy to define good and evil for themselves. They seize the autonomy to take wisdom without intimacy, to define their own rules and define their own autonomy, to decide their own way of wisdom and defining right and wrong, rather than trusting in God's and growing in wisdom and stature with God and man over time. If you think about a 10-year-old kid, right? This is the story of so many of us, right? Even this room. A 10-year-old boy goes downstairs. His friend shows him a, a box of magazines that he found in his dad's closet. The kid knows from his parents that he's not supposed to look at the magazines. He's got a good dad. He's got a good mom. They sat him down. They said, there's certain things in this world, son, you're just not ready for. You're not ready to look at these magazines. This is not, this is not of, of God. You're not supposed to be looking at these magazines. You're not ready to look at naked people yet because you're not married yet. But maybe the 10-year-old sees it and something sparks in, in him. Is nakedness bad? inside of a marriage context? Is intimacy bad inside of a marriage context? Is the desire for sex bad? Looking into marriage and then once you're married, is, is sex bad? And that's how, that's how the tree of the knowledge of good and evil can work both ways if you take it too soon, right? So what's happened is the boy sees it, he delights in it, and instead of trusting the process of growing into a mature husband and father and ruler to garden his family, what does he do? He takes it. Opening his eyes to deciding what's right and wrong on his own. And then what happens next? Why are they naked and ashamed? You know why they're naked and ashamed? Little kids get out of that. My kids, they run around naked. There's no shame in my house. There's just nakedness just running around. I mean, not the older ones, thank you, but the younger ones, they just run around naked. You know why? Because they have they have no risk of shame of their body. What's happened to Adam and Eve? Well, in a political scheme, if there's two people and they don't have the same definition of right and wrong, then how do I know that that person's not going to say that they're right and I'm wrong? Because I know what I'm thinking about them. I'm deciding what's Tov and Ra on my own. And maybe, maybe they're thinking the way that I'm thinking. They've decided my body's not Tov, it's raw. My ideas aren't Tov, they're raw. My character is not Tove, it's raw. My personality is not Tove, it's raw. You see what happens when, when kings and queens is under kings and queens of God becomes autonomous kings and queens and a rebellion strikes? How nakedness would strike right at the core of that really quickly? This is the idea that we were raised up to rule with authority, but we rule in relationship. We were supposed to grow in wisdom and in stature with God and man to walk in the cool of the day and learn things in their due time, to understand the beauty of a woman or beauty or, 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 or I don't know what you call it, the handsomeness of a man. I don't know what you would say. And you would walk with them hand in hand and grow in what responsibility would look like and taking care of somebody else and listening to them and fighting for them and all these things and sex becoming part of that as opposed to taking it off of the tree and owning it for myself. That is what stealing and taking from the knowledge of good and evil would look like. So what does Jesus do? I'm going to read through these passages really quickly, but I think it's important just to see the, the scripture for ourselves. Who is the one that goes to the test and passes it when he is tempted with the ability to define good and evil for himself and passes it? Not Solomon. Solomon says was wiser than any man. He even had a great nation of, 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 of multiple generations, as many of the stars in the sky, and he actually had other other queens and other people coming to, to see the wisdom of his rulership. He was fulfilling some of the Genesis commandment. But in the very next passage, it says, although he started with the love of the Lord, it ends with the very verse, 
And, and he loved many foreign women and took many foreign wives, exactly what the Lord God told him not to do. He decided to take his own version of truth and evil and authority and, and shape his own world around it. But who's the only one that, that did pass the test? Who's the only one that could go before the tempter and not fail? In Luke chapter 4, after Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him, I'm just going to read right through the story and interpret it as you will. It says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and he left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He goes right into the heart of Tohu Vavohu, into the place of exile where, the, where, where Satan has claimed his domain or at least thinks he's the ruler. He's going right into the, to the heart of the beast. Where for 40 days, same as Deuteronomy, same as the, uh, the Israelites were failing the same test as Adam failed to trust God, he was tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. He's made himself vulnerable. He's physically way stronger and more intellectually sharp than, than Eve is, but he has humbled himself, broken himself through fasting, and he's put himself in this vulnerable place where he has nothing um, to, to compare the temptation of Satan to so he could show off and exhibit his trust in God. This is spiritual warfare. And he goes into this place. He says, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, is it written, man shall not live on bread alone. So he's quoting Deuteronomy, the very truths that Deuteronomy, that Israel should have trusted. He's quoting these things right to his face. He's telling him these things. He's going, don't you know that man shall not live on bread alone? The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give all these things, Babylon, Babylon Egypt, Assyria, all these things, they all belong to me. I'm I'm, I'm partnering with Pharaoh in these things. He says, you can have all this authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will always be yours. And Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God to serve him only. That's Deuteronomy again. He goes right back to the truth. And by the way, is it bad for Jesus to ask his father for bread? Is it bad to receive the kingdom? Isn't that exactly what Jesus came to do? Yes, but the difference is between taking and trusting. Jesus says, I... I he says, I can't, I can't truly rule if I go out from the autonomy, go out from underneath, excuse me, partnership with God and, and trust in my own autonomy. He's going, I'm going to trust in God and I'm not going to take the authority. I'm going to allow the Father to give it to me. And so this is, what he's telling, this is what he's telling him. He's like, it's not that I don't believe I'm supposed to rule. It's not that I don't believe I'm supposed to have authority to define Tov and Ra. I'm the king of the universe. But my kingship comes in submission to my, to my trinity. My, my kingship comes in submission to my father. And so this is what he's showing him. Uh, worship the Lord your God only. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will commend his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and you will lift up your hands. Um, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Another Deuteronomy reference. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. Is it, is it bad for Jesus to believe that protection, provision, and promotion belongs to him? No. Is it bad to believe that Adam and Eve were going to grow into the knowledge of good and evil? They're supposed to rule the garden. They're supposed to know good and evil, but not at the expense of intimacy, not at the expense of relationship. True wisdom comes from intimacy. It's not, it's not separate from it. You can't just go and take your definition of TED Talks and Pinterest and whatever information we want to get on our phone to add up our worldview. It has to start with the fear of the Lord. And any wisdom that doesn't start with the fear of the Lord becomes craftiness. It becomes a level of evil the way that Satan did from the beginning. So this is my sermon in a sentence. Evil is more invisible and intelligent than we think. It is not sporadic, but it's very strategic. Before evil attacks the world with disease, poverty, and injustice, it attacks our mind first and foremost with the currency of lies. So victory then, if those two things are true, 
Victory over evil is found less in fighting sin and more in modeling and trusting the truth of Jesus. Does that land? It's not about yelling and screaming at the devil. It's about trusting the one who holds you. And I, and I just think that the part of the problem is we don't want to go through the due diligence of Luke 2.52 of growing in wisdom and stature because we want our answer now. We, we would prefer a magic eight ball Jesus. I mean, I would. I wish I had an app. I think sometimes that's why we have phones is we wish there was an app that just microwaved maturity into us and microwaved wisdom into us. And, and, and we go about the process of spiritual development as though it's a microwave. And we want to shake and bake for 30 seconds and grow into the character of Jesus. And he's like, I sat for 30 years before I did three years of ministry. And so, and so the process of what Adam and Eve are doing is they're, they're taking the wisdom that God wanted to give them in the first place. But the wisdom had to come with intimacy. It had to come with a relationship. This is the way that Jesus says at the end of his ministry, he says, I don't want you to become a servant. A servant's the one that just shakes the eight ball and says left or right, yes or no. I want you to come into the family of wisdom. I want you to be a friend because the friend knows the master's business. That's the difference between a servant and a friend. That's the difference between a friend and a family member is the the servant works for a wage. The servant kind of knows in a transactional way, I'm going to sort of get to God and get his wisdom to get my family back on track. But he's, he's teaching us and showing us that the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, although good, is incredibly dangerous if not connected to the fear of the Lord and doesn't do any good at all. We have more information and more ability to communication in our era than ever and have less wisdom, I would argue, than ever before. And so wisdom is really a lot less about the expansion of the mind. It's about the expansion of the heart in fear of the Lord. I want you to picture right now the wisest person you know, and I want to take three guesses about this person, and I want you to maybe rest into this possibility. But I want you to think about the wisest person that you know. And wise in the Jewish sense doesn't mean they invest in the right stocks. Wise means they have a wholehearted family, they have a wholehearted um, integral uh, character, they, uh, they cry a lot, they laugh a lot, they have a lot of joy. The good life, okay? So I want you to think about this for a second. This is my guess about the person you have in your head. Number one, they didn't get to who they are overnight, right? Like somebody's going to come up to this week and they'll be like, I read this book on parenting and I got it all figured out. And that's probably part of the process. But that wise person, like if they're a good parent, they, didn't, they got it from a book, but it didn't just come from the book, right? It came from daily habitual patterns of consistency of fearing God and in and, every out, in and out of every season, good or bad. So the idea of wisdom is something that's not microwaved and it's not spontaneous. It is a long, hard-fought, thorough process that just can't be handed down by intercession. It comes with a history in God. It comes with years of praying and seeking and fasting and feasting and and walking and praying with God, of growing in stature with God. Wisdom doesn't come from a book. It comes from a life given to God. This is what it means to have wisdom inside of intimacy, not in a classroom. Number two, my second guess... um, is that, the, is that the person in, in your head, um, my guess is that, uh, that some of the people that you're thinking of, they're not very smart. And that's good news for us, right? Because how many of you guys know somebody who's really smart, but not very wise? <laughs> right? You got to know people that can memorize a lot of stuff, work their way around an argument, flip a phrase, people that can be really smart, 
But if you look at their life, they're not very wise. Wisdom and smarts don't have to carry. How many of you guys know somebody who's really not very smart, but has a whole lot of health in their heart? Right? So what does that tell us? That wisdom doesn't come from books. It comes from history with God. It comes from fear of the Lord. It comes from fearing the Lord before the punishment, not after. You remember that, that Adam, when he sins, he says, what's wrong? He says, well, I saw you and I feared you. That's the wrong kind of fear. That's fear too late. We're not afraid of God. We fear him. We have reverence. We have respect. And we know that he's above us. We're above creation, but we're under him. And if we can live a life, somehow manage to be smart enough to do that for a long enough period of time, God promises wisdom. This is my last assumption about the person in your head. My last assumption is, and I would argue with you if you don't think this is true, but I'm, my assumption is they're in love with Jesus Christ. And there's just really no, no wisdom apart from that. I think there's ways that we can learn from one another. Um, I personally believe that, um, that, that, for example, counseling is a really powerful thing, but being alone with a person to speak into your life that isn't founded on the rock of Jesus Christ is probably um, a mistake. And that, and that the essence of understanding what wisdom is, it's the wise man who builds his house on the rock, who listens and obeys to what Jesus says. This is what wisdom is. It's not in books. It's not in more information. And it's not in a microwave. It's not overnight. It's not a magic eight ball. It's a continual diligence to sit by the tree of life. So maybe you have a big decision. This is the intentional question today. Where is there wisdom without intimacy with Jesus in your life? Because that's what the snake is, essentially. He came in. He was craftier than any of the beasts of the field. He was sophisticated, but he had no fear of God. And the very thing that was supposed to be the gift, the crowning jewel of Adam and Eve to rule over was the very thing that brought death right into the center of that creation. Why? Because it was wisdom without intimacy. It was deciding right and wrong without consulting the one that made right and wrong. Probably not wise. Probably can't be considered wisdom in the first place. So if you have a big decision, here's what I would suggest. Instead of asking yourself, magic eight ball, should I go left or go right? Start with this question. Who's God? And from there, who am I? And if we can answer the question and saturate on the boring part of the sermon, you know the part that's just kind of like, why is he talking about all this theology and all this stuff that seems like it's not relevant? Well, it is. It's just not directly relevant. Everything about the character of God is the most relevant thing and it takes a little homework to get through some of the edge of that Old Testament stuff. And I hope that some of our time here, you know, studying some of this stuff helps us peel back some of that layers. But to understand that story is our story. And God's the same in that book as he is now. And he's completely revealing himself through the pages. And the wisest person is the one who's going to take that book, which you could steal out of a hotel and it's not really stealing, and just get busy with that because that's where the character of God is. And it's out of the character of God that I know who I am and and come on now, when we know who we are, we know exactly what to do in every situation. We don't have a doing problem. We have an identity problem. We have to go back to the start. And so if there's a big decision, I believe that Jesus' life, the failure of Adam and Eve, the failure of, of, um, of Solomon and every other king before and after him is the difference between trusting and taking. Will we sit by the tree of the knowledge, or excuse me, sit by the tree of life rather, sit by the tree of life as the promise of God to receive what he wants to give us rather than take it. That's the difference between fool and wise. Number two, if you're desiring wisdom, if you're in a place where you would like to grow, um, then the idea is that it doesn't take overnight. And that the idea is, I want to read a psalm called Psalm 1 in a second, that really I think gives a portrait of what this might look like to meditate on something, not to get to scripture to get an answer out of it, but just let it say what it wants to say and allow it to confront the things in our heart that needs to be. And lastly, 
if we're in a place um, where we are being spiritually tempted and we, we see this kind of place, this dissonance between wisdom and, and intimacy, uh, the best spiritual uh, warfare is actually spiritual discipline. And the people, that, the people that I have seen have done the most for others and for themselves in the way of moving back the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of heaven. It's not people that just memorize a great prayer. It's people that have put in history with God, that have developed a foundation with God through prayer and scripture, a history and a relationship. That's it. That's the, there is no exchangeable commodity that you can sell on the market that supplants that. It's history with God. Would you stay with me? I'm going to invite the worship team forward. And I just want to read this psalm uh, over us because I believe um, as we allow some of these words to wash over us, I think that it, um, it gives, it, I think that it ports, paints a picture and helps us um, feel, not only know, what, what the blessed life might look like, what life next to God might look like, what actually growing in the knowledge of good and evil with God and in intimacy would look like. It's, it's Psalm 1. And, uh, and Jewish meditation, by the way, if you struggle with prayer and, you're, and your thoughts tend to wander uh, and, and you don't usually feel like you can like, make any momentum in prayer, the suggestion is, and really the reason why the Psalms are written, is to read the Psalms. Meditation in the Eastern sense is to empty the mind, but the Psalms are written to fill us with God's truth. And prayer is not so much just kind of reflecting back into our personal journal, but it's, it's meditating and fixating on what's truer than our emotions, our circumstances, and on the truth of God. And so potentially, one practical next step about growing in favor with, this, with wisdom of God and man is to meditate on the scriptures and allow his words to guide even our prayers, not just our thoughts. So this is what this might look like. It says, Psalm 1, blessed Genesis 1 language. If you want Eden, this is what Eden looks like in this place. He says, it's the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. When they get on Facebook, you see the sway of this world to push and bend itself towards evil. And the decision to not, to not become a part and give way to this trend, to not to stand in the way of sinners or, or sit in the company of mockers, but it says to delight. You see the language there is the same as Eden, excuse me, the same as Eve delighted in that tree to go and take the tree. The delight is now in trust. The delight is in the law of the Lord, of what he says is right and wrong rather than what I want to call right and wrong. It says he meditates on them day and night, day and night. It's not just a, a, a math problem to get through. It's a saturation thing where you chew on the cud, you're, you're, you're thinking about it, you're contemplating it. And it says that person, get this, they're like a tree planted in the streams of water. So what's the psalmist set, done there? He's actually said, instead of taking from the tree, now this person that has sat by the tree of life has actually become kind of a tree in a metaphorical sense and offers wisdom to other people. That person is like a tree who is planted in relationship. That's the streams of the water of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just intellectualism. It's, it's being planted next to the water of the Holy Spirit. And look, look, look what it does. It yields this fruit. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. How do I do that? And abide and yield into this place. Sit next to the tree of life and you'll be fruitful. This leaf, it never dies. It never withers. If you eat from the tree of good knowledge of good and evil and you take this tree, you'll surely die. But if you sit by the tree of life in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, your leaf will never wither. You'll never perish. Whatever they do prospers. Be prosperous. Fill the earth. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. They are blown away by the wind. The afternoon breeze was something that Adam used to dwell in. And then it mentions it as something he was blown away from. And he never had the, the cool of the day to walk with God anymore. And so the, the choice to go and take Exodus us, us, us out of the presence of God. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And so, um, for for each of us here that are gathered in this place, God, uh, I thank you for this invitation through your son Jesus who came and was the serpent killer. He stepped on the head of the snake. And uh, for all the young kings and queens, image bearers in this place, um, I just bless every single one of us from oldest to youngest to walk in the cool of the day to choose the wisdom that comes from intimacy rather than the wisdom that comes from independence. And so I bless our, our, our church that's gathered here. I bless those that we represent as we care for others that don't gather with us um, with the truth to supplant that lie that God is not holding out from us that the best is from his hand and that the things that we need we don't have to take that he wants to give us there's more than enough and so I just bless uh, this community this family that's gathered here as we continue to work through your scriptures to sit by your tree of life day and night and to grow in wisdom and stature with God and man that we might rule and reign with you we love you and trust you in these things in Jesus name Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.